Sports Day in the D. John on here. Glad to be back with you. It is July 4th, 2014. Happy Independence Day, everybody. And excited to be back here with you on Shout Engine as we're going to have a new relaunch show here for Sports Day in the D. So I hope it picks up and I hope everybody enjoys and has fun with it. Let's get into some NBA free agent news as we're going to talk about the Toronto Raptors. And yes, there's a few things you would think about in terms of a basketball team in the way that it used to be with Isaiah Thomas, with Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady. Yeah, he made some splash moves, but those didn't necessarily work out. And the Toronto Raptors coming in from 1996 being an expansion franchise, desperately trying to get back into the playoffs, haven't done so since Chris, Chris Bosch was on the team in 2004 when he was drafted. And then now, you think about it, with Chris Bosh and Jose Calderon, they had that one brief playoff appearance, but the Raptors have finally put themselves back on the map in the NBA. Talking about it last year, one of the big free agents that could have been has made a mainstay in Toronto. Kyle Lowry signs a four-year deal worth $48 million to stay a Raptor. If you think about it in the grand scheme of things, I think it's pretty easy to say that Kyle Lowry as a point guard talent is a top 10 in this league. And for him to sign a four-year, $48 million deal, $12 million a year, I think is a great signing for the Raptors and for Kyle Lowry because he gets to stay. And quite frankly, on a team, when you think about it with Lowry and DeRozan, they got some definite, definite talent, and they're looking to try to make a push, and they're trying to make it in the right way. And we'll definitely be talking about that as we move along here. Uh, Kyle Lowry, in terms of my opinion, he may be lacking size, but he's not lacking any heart. And his game is clearly a main cog for the Raptors. And he had last season about 18 points per game and 7.5 assists last season as the Raptors finished in the third seed in the Eastern Conference. I know the Eastern Conference was very pitiful, but the Raptors, deserving to be where they were, finishing as a third seed in 48-34 and record. So the main thing for Toronto and this free agent news, and one of the reasons why I think that they are a great team and they're on the up and coming, and we'll get into some of the other news as well because we're not just going to be talking about Toronto, but I wanted to make this a quick point because I think that they're doing this the right way. And in terms of what the NBA free agency is all about, it's usually all about lunacy and it's usually all about money. As pretty much 30 teams fall all over themselves or try to be the highest bidder to get to what they believe will take them to the promised land. And you gotta, you got to understand something. Here, the NBA free agency is not a gamble that you usually want to end up taking. You got to go ahead and try to get homegrown talent, get stuff through the draft, and set your team up that way because in the NBA free agency, the money just gets to pretty much lunacy levels and it's hard to maintain when you have a couple of bad signings. Just ask the Detroit Pistons with Ben Gordon, Charlie Villanueva, Josh Smith, and Brandon Jennings. You can see how well that works out. So the Toronto Raptors try to bolster their bench. They trade John Salmons and a second-round pick for 2015, and they get Lewis Williams and Lucas Nogueira, the rookie Brazilian of last year, in return. And I wonder how exactly they did that. Did they pull a fast one 
on Atlanta here. Because they get Lewis Williams. He's a guy that's a six-man that can come off the bench, heat up in a hurry, and absolutely put points on the board. It's true that Lewis Williams, at age 27, needs to recover from an injury that he sustained. But it's going to be clear that this guy is going to be able to put points on the board. And with John Salmon's only getting you six points per game last year in very limited games and very limited minutes, he's not going to be able to be that guy from a few years ago that seemed to just usually bounce around from teams to teams looking for a scoring punch to try to get something desperately needed in the playoffs. John Salmons doesn't seem to be that guy. And to be able to trade him away and his six points per game to get Lewis Williams and Noguera, who could turn out to be something possibly for a 2015 pick only, and John Salmons and the second round pick at that, I think that that's a very good move. The projected lineup for the... Toronto Raptors, I know Steve Novak is making a lot of money, but this seems quite interesting in my opinion, because you have Kyle Lowry who stayed, DeMar DeRozan, Terrence Ross, Amir Johnson, and Jonas Valanciunas in the starting lineup. That's not all that bad in the Eastern Conference. That's capable of being pretty strong. And then you think about on the bench, Grievous Vasquez I think is very underrated. He's a pretty damn good uh, backup point guard, and he can fill the role that he needs to. And then you add Lewis Williams. Landry Fields, I think, needs to be, be able to make a little bit of a resurgence. He was pretty good in New York. He hasn't really panned out necessarily in Toronto, but he's still got time. And then you got Patrick Patterson, who's a big that can shoot the three and spread out. And Tyler Hansborough is going to fight inside. That's not all that bad. I think that it's a good starting point for the Toronto Raptors. And the signing of Lowry, I think, was absolutely big. And pretty much getting Lewis Williams for nothing, I think... Makes a lot of sense for them. That's why I think that they are one of the better organizations right now in basketball. And the organization was loyal. Because the 20th pick, nobody knew about the kid out of Brazil, an 18-year-old, of Bruno Cabacolo. I think that's how you say his name. I don't want to totally botch that here. But at 18 years of age... The Toronto Raptors promised that they would go ahead and sign this guy, and they got their wish. And Raptors GM Messiah Usury had some interesting comments about this, and let's take a listen. Honestly, I don't do it for reactions of anybody. I shouldn't say this, but I don't, I don't care. You know, like we're in a business where I just have to maybe do my job. I think it's five years from being five years away, but you know what? The Raptors would take it. And there was a couple comments in there from Masai Ujiri. You're talking about uh, Fran Lineberry. He had one of the uh, better lines in terms of all of that, saying that Kalakabo is two years from being two years away. And that was one of the funniest lines because he said the Raptors were trying to have like a 38th pick in the second round. They didn't think he was going to be able to fall to him, and they were able to go ahead and get the guy that they thought could be pretty good. And in terms of that, there's a little bit of mystery in this man's game. And let's get some news on that, too, because Messiah's going to talk about a little bit about what he thinks this kid could develop into. Take a listen. Because of his length, you know, like he, he moves his feet pretty good. Um, he's, got, he's got a touch. He, like, he likes to shoot it. So we picked him because we feel there's some good upside there. We'll develop him. It'll take time. And uh, we're ready to uh, be patient with him. 
And I think that's good. Messiah was pointing that because of his length, he thinks that he's going to be a good defender and that he has a little bit of an outside touch and he thinks he's going to be able to shoot and do some other things. You know, at 18 years old, there's not a lot of data in terms of what Messiah was talking about in terms of this kid. You don't know what he's going to end up being, but they do like his incredible work ethic and the fact that he's a gym rat. And the Toronto Raptors promised this kid that they would draft him. It might seem like it was a little bit early, but again, Toronto thought that they wouldn't be able to have a chance to get this guy, so they made that pick at 20. And I think that that's something that the Toronto Raptors, if you think about it in terms of, I told you before, that with Isaiah Thomas, they, you know, they were an expansion franchise. They were struggling. They tried to make some splash. That didn't seem to work out. They made some bad signings in the past, bad pick of Andrea Bargani. That didn't pan out. And this team had to wash themselves away of all the mess that they made. And I think now, with a good, strong finish in the Eastern Conference, like we said, we know that there was a little bit weak. The Raptors deserve everything that they would get as the three seed of 48 and 34. Unfortunately, they weren't able to make it in the first round. They lost the seven-game series to Brooklyn Nets, an exciting one at that. And when we did the playoff preview show a few months ago in terms of March, I told you about maybe that would be one series that we thought could be important, and that definitely was one. But it seems like the Raptors have finally fixed themselves away from that horrible situation. They're starting to make some good signings. They're starting to get some talent in there. Clearly, DeMar DeRozan has emerged, and not only just being athletic of what he already was, but he's emerged into being a guy that can definitely pop a mid-range jump shot whenever you want and get guys off the dribble. He's definitely developed. Valanchunas is another guy that's over seven feet that's athletic he's able to jump and do other things play good defense get some rebounds hustle all of that Hansborough I think is a fighter inside I said I already liked Patrick Patterson I know that Novak is making a little bit of much money but with Williams and the moves that they've made you really believe that this team is headed in the right direction and they're clearly deserving of some praise because Toronto is an organization that you honestly you can't make fun of anymore Let's transition in a little bit with the Cleveland Cavs. This is a team that, in my opinion, is one of these ones that's still trying to find themselves out of the mess that they've made. They had to make this signing in terms of Kyrie Irving, a five-year, $90 million max extension. In terms of Kyrie, that's a lot of money in an early age, and I think that that's the only way that the Cavs, holding on to one of the saving graces that they have in Kyrie, are able to keep Kyrie in that sense. So an extension, I think, makes sense. they got to go ahead and do that for the Max because that's the only guy they can really hold on to. They're trying to figure out whether or not Deion Waiters is going to pan out and whether or not, honestly, they didn't get Jabari Parker. They said it. They settled on Wiggins, and they're going to see if that ends up panning out. So Cleveland needs to be able to do what they have to to keep their star in there. Kyrie is an incredibly offensively gifted player. He's got to be able to build a little bit on defense, but the Cavs really don't have any other choice to sign Kyrie to that max, the five years, $90 million extension. Some other news in terms of the free agency frenzy. Talking about Martian Gortat, the Polish hammer. He signs a five-year extension worth $60 million. This is interesting because there's no early termination for the 30-year-old Gortat. He's got to stay there for the five years. That's per David Aldridge reporting for NBA.com. 
I think that that's an interesting signing for the Washington Wizards, but I think that's something that you need to make. In terms of Gortat being 30 years old, you may say he's making a little bit much money in terms of that $60 million, but I argue with you that you have to overpay your bigs sometimes. There's not a lot of good skilled bigs in this league, and Gortat's able to bang inside, get some rebounds, score some points with the hook. He's definitely a guy that the Wizards need to keep as they're trying to build after just winning one playoff series, getting past the Chicago Bulls is not able to unfortunately advance after that. But the Wizards are definitely on the come up with John Wall finally coming into his own. And it seems like Bradley Beal is very gifted in terms of scoring. He's a very young guy that's going to continue to progress. So I think that that's a good signing for the Washington Wizards. The only different thing to talk about in terms of Gortat is what are the Wizards going to do with Trevor Ariza no use no news yet in terms of what they're going to be able to do with him but if you think Gortat gets the five-year 60 million and that seems to be already in the bank that Ariza is going to want similar type money the question is whether or not the Wizards will pay that to Ariza considering he's just a guy that's going to splash you some threes and play incredible defense that's where his game mostly lies but I think he would get a deal similar to Gortat it's just a question of whether or not the Washington Wizards will pay him that money the Golden State Warriors signed Sean Livingston who's made a little bit of a resurgence to a three-year deal reportedly worth about 16 million dollars hasn't finalized yet but with the Golden State Warriors, Sean Livingston is a good story, being able to make a little bit of a resurgence. You know, he suffered that horrific injury as he was a very early pick out of high school for the Los Angeles Clippers. There's a lot of stuff with the ACL. Livingston was hurt. He didn't know if he could even get back into the NBA and play his game again. But he had a pretty good season last year with the Brooklyn Nets. I think the Golden State Warriors have to sign this guy to this kind of money because... Livingston is one of those quintessential big point guards. He's going to be able to alleviate uh, Stephen Curry a little bit in that minutes allocation, be able to give him a little bit of a rest. I think Livingston is very skilled at going to the rack, and I think that that's something that the Golden State Warriors desperately need is someone to give Curry a spell. I know Andre Godala hadn't necessarily panned out as much as the Warriors wanted in terms of points, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that was a bad signing. Iguodala is one of the guys that's just an incredibly gifted teammate, somebody that you want on your team for a professional playoff run, and Iguodala fits that bill. You don't want Iguodala necessarily to be your backup point guard all the time, but just like how Curry had to end up having that happen because he didn't have a backup. I think Livingston makes a lot of sense for the Warriors, and I think that that's a move that they had to make. In terms of the lunacy and everything that's going on, I'm going to have a little bit of a disagreement to maybe to some of you. And like we mentioned, in terms of you've read of some of that stuff of the Sports Day and the D relaunch here on Shout Engine, you're not going to agree with everything I have to say. And this is maybe one of these things where I will differentiate from all of you. The 23-year-old Lance Stevenson. A lot's been said about Lance in terms of being able to blow in LeBron's ear, get inside people's head. He's pretty skilled. He's able to get some triple-doubles. Very good for a shooting guard. He's got an all-around game. But he is a little bit of a knucklehead. He might be the next Ron Artest slash Metal World Peace. The Pacers reportedly offer Lance Stevenson five years, $44 million to stay in Indiana. The question is, will Lance Stevenson accept that contract? Right now, from everything that we're hearing, ESPN also reporting that Lance Stevenson believes that he is worth, quote-unquote, a lot more than this. So, I don't know what that means. 
whether or not it's five years, 44 million right now, could that turn into a five years, 60 mil? Could he get more instead of 11 mil per year? Let's say about what you would think maybe Lance Stevenson is worth at the most. Is he asking for about 15 or 16, in my opinion? And do the Pacers think that that's worth it? You know, Lance Stevenson does have a lot of skill, but they also have a lot of other needs, in my opinion, in terms of being able to sign a good backup point guard. I'm not talking about being able to sign Rajon Rondo. I think that might be out of their realm of possibility in terms of a trade, in terms of them being in the same conference. But I'm talking about a guy that maybe you would think of in terms that could be a skilled backup point guard like an Eric Main or somebody like that. I don't think he's available on the market, but I'm talking about a skilled pass-first point guard that maybe doesn't have the offensive punch but knows how to run the offense. That's somebody that wouldn't command as much money, but that's somebody that the Pacers should be looking to target. But the question is, who is that going to be? Lance Stevenson, on the other hand, I think he needs to look at it some other way. I know he's a young guy at 20 years of age. You know, the Pacers give him a chance. He ends up breaking into the organization and doing pretty well. Now at 23... He's looking to get a contract. I think five years and $44 million is pretty fair for Lance Stevenson, considering he is a knucklehead. And you don't know exactly <clears throat> how much longer the Pacers will be able to deal with that. So they have to cut him a little bit of a pay cut because of all the extracurricular that he brings. Lance, at 23 years of age, may feel that he is entitled to more money, considering the stuff that he did with the Pacers and be able to get some of these triple-doubles like I mentioned, maybe, what, $60 million Lance Stevenson might be thinking about is just what I'm thinking might be in the ballpark. I question for Lance, and I, I hope you know he's not going to get a chance to hear what the hell I have to say about it, but I would think he takes a minute to think about the grass is not always greener on the other side. Who is going to go ahead and offer him that kind of money? Is it going to be the Milwaukee Bucks? Is it going to be the Philadelphia 76ers? Is it going to be the Cleveland Cavaliers? Is it going to be one of these bottom feeder teams? Yeah, he's going to get paid some more money, and he might like that being a young kid, and maybe that's all his motivation is going to be, being 23 years of age, and that's probably true. But the grass is not always greener on the other side, and he wouldn't really like playing for a basement team as the situation goes along. The Pacers are a good organization. They're trying to go through all the mess that was caused by Paul George, you know, allegedly getting three strippers pregnant and giving them, giving them all the morning after pill, allegedly sleeping with Roy Hibbert's wife, and allegedly having some problems with Lance Stevenson. Don't know if all of that stuff was true, but a lot of those rumors were on the market. And now, with the Pacers trying to figure out that whole situation and getting away from Lance Stevenson, maybe that five years, $44 million is just a getting away offer. Maybe Lance is going to try to go somewhere else. But I wonder if that situation is going to be any better than it already is in Indiana. When we come back in from the break... We're going to talk about some more coaching news as the Milwaukee Bucks have made a very bizarre move to acquire Jason Kidd from the Brooklyn Nets for two second round picks. We'll tell you why that whole situation isn't looking very good and why Jason Kidd isn't looking very good in the process either. 
John Ott, Sports Day in the D, come back in from the break. Sports Day in the D, John Ott here back with you. Let's get into some more basketball news. Apologize for the explosions and everything else that's been going off if you hear some of that in the broadcast. Fourth of July, all of that stuff can't be helped. Everybody's getting that festivity started early as I bring this show to you. So there's a few things that we need to get to in terms of this coaching fiasco that is the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks, and that involves Jason Kidd and Bucks co-owner Mark Lazary. So in a completely bizarre move, in my opinion, the Milwaukee Bucks trade two second-round picks away to get Jason Kidd from the Brooklyn Nets. And it's true that the Bucks had the worst record in the league last year at 15-67. and 67. This may be one of the instances where they try to go ahead and get this guy in here to try to make a little bit of an impact. But if you're more than just an NBA fan and you know what the hell is going on in Brooklyn and you know what's going on in Milwaukee, then you get the clear sense that Jason Kidd was on his way out of Brooklyn because there was another guy coming in in those footsteps, and they just needed to get rid of Jason Kidd. They had to get that divorce going and get him out of there because he just wanted too much power, and he was a little bit hungry of everything else that's been going on. But the interesting part about all of this is that the Bucks, in order to get Jason Kidd, not only got rid of those two second-round picks, but they also did not inform Larry Drew that this was going to happen, and they didn't even fire Larry Drew. So all of this stuff was going on while Jason Kidd was still coaching the Brooklyn Nets during that time in the playoffs, and Larry Drew wasn't even informed of the whole situation. This is going to be Bucks co-owner Mark Lazary talking about the mistake that they made in terms of not even letting Larry Drew know what was going on. Take a listen. I would tell you it was very much newness. I, I think um, we've learned a lot in this process. I would tell you our view, and it hasn't changed from the beginning, is that all the basketball operations, everything goes through John. And I think in this process we learned, you know, we made a mistake, and I think we've learned that pretty well. So that's what he had to say in terms of all of that, and he thinks that they definitely made a mistake, which is obvious that he did. I don't think... Mark was, Mr. Lazary was even going to be talking about anything else in terms of that. I think if you're going to go ahead and go after a coach, and you're going to go ahead and shaft somebody like Larry Drew, that you would at least let him know that you're letting him go, that you're firing him, and then going ahead and trying to get another coach. But instead, they go after and try to get Jason Kidd, who didn't even do that good of a job with the Brooklyn Nets. I will go ahead and reiterate some of that stuff for you as we're going forward. But I first want to bring ahead this attention to not let Larry Drew know of what was going on and why this bothers me so much. Like we mentioned, we know their record was bad at 15 and 67. I don't put all of the blame on Larry Drew in terms of this situation. Drew was a head coach for four years. The fourth year that was the Milwaukee Bucks with the 15 and 67. Before those four years, he was in Atlanta as the head coach of the Hawks. His three seasons, he finished 44 and 38, 40 and 26, and 44 and 38 with the Hawks. He made it to the Eastern Conference semifinals. That's as far as he got, but he did a pretty good job of that because Atlanta, one of those teams that's it's a good story for the East. 
And they had to deal with having Josh Smith and all of that when they wanted him on the way out. And there was a lot of personalities, including Lewis Williams, who I think was a good pickup for the Raptors, like we mentioned in the last segment. There was a lot of personalities in that team. And Larry, Do- Larry Drew did a good job of coaching the Atlanta Hawks team. And in the same regard for the Brooklyn Nets, who were completely void of talent, their best player was Ersan Ilyasova from Turkey. And I'm not trying to slam on Ersan here, but if that's your best player on your squad, then you're going to have some problems because your other power forward, Larry Sanders, the colonel, was res- uh, arrested on drug charges of possessing marijuana. So a lot of that stuff just didn't go so well, and they're going to go ahead and the Milwaukee Bucks are in place. All of that on Larry Drew, I think that that doesn't make much sense. And in terms of all of that, there's some comments that were going on with Brooklyn Nets and Jason Kidd, which we'll get to. Let me get to something a little bit quickly here, and then we'll get into those Jason Kidd comments, because I want to talk about Brooklyn Nets, because they're not entirely innocent in this process either, but they're definitely going to come out looking better than the Bucks are. So, when the Brooklyn Nets were largely underwhelming, sitting at 25-27 and 27 at the All-Star break of last season, there, there was some cause for concern. For myself, you know, I got this stuff on the show, and I'll go ahead and make an introduction thing for you guys to listen to after the show is posted to welcome you into Sports Day in the D, because I really appreciate all of you guys listening. During that season, I waited 20 games before writing an article on the Brooklyn Nets, the New York Knicks, both, both of the New York teams. I wanted to see where they were at after 20 games. And then I would go ahead and try to write an article talking about what I've seen and some of the moves that these teams have made. So in 20 games, when I decided to put that pen to paper and submit the stuff online, the Brooklyn Nets were sitting at 6-14. and 14. That's when I decided to submit an article to the Yahoo Contributor Network. This is where it gets pretty interesting and a funny side note of which I want to share with you because even if you're just an NBA fan, you're going to look on this from the outside looking and you're saying, my God, the Brooklyn Nets were horrible and Jason Kidd probably wasn't the best decision to bring on this kind of team into a rookie head coach. Yeah, they had some talent with Garnett and Pierce. They had to deal with some injuries. Jason Terry, all of that stuff. But clearly, when they first all came together, I think a lot of people thought that this could be a team that can try to dethrone the Miami Heat. It might not have been possible, but that was one of the teams at the time with the Indiana Pacers that you might have thought that to be the case. And I think that that's fair to say. But when they were sitting at 6-14 and 14 and Jason Kidd had the soda gate as one of the players who tried to get him to run, in it, run into him and say, hit me, well now, there isn't any other reason to say that because I'm pretty sure the Milwaukee Bucks are going to want to slap the hell out of Jason Kidd for being there. But I digress. So at 6-14, and 14, the article that I submitted about all the picks that the Brooklyn Nets had lost, try to get Jason Kidd, try to bring in an older Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Jason Terry, maybe not the best moves, maybe you got to think about a little bit of a rebuild, picking up Joe Johnson off of that max contract from Atlanta, some of these moves in there, definitely should be able to criticize some of that stuff, and especially with the New York Knicks as well, yeah, they got Carmelo, they went all in and rolled the dice, but... Look at how that's worked out so far. Maybe that hasn't been working out so well. And you know what I got with the Brooklyn Nets sitting at 6-14 and 14 and all that stuff that was talked about? The article is too critical to be accepted for the Yahoo Contributor Network.
I find that absolutely hilarious. Now, when I just got an email yesterday saying that the contributor network was no more, I had a little bit of an ironic laugh because I kind of figured that's where that was going to be headed. Too critical to be accepted. My God, I, I've never heard of that before. So, with Jason Kidd and everything not going so well, when the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Knicks played against each other, the Knicks, that were abysmal as well, beat the Nets by 30. And then, the following night, the Brooklyn Nets, during that time when they were 6-14, and proceeded to lose to the Celtics 114-73. to And ladies and gentlemen, if you do not know, that is 41 points. An absolute beatdown in Beantown by the Boston Celtics. <clears throat> So, the Brooklyn Nets have sensed now with the divorce of Jason Kidd, they've gotten in Lionel Hollins. By the way, Lionel Hollins in Memphis was a coach that never should have been let go in Memphis. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. This team, Lionel Hollins, last year, makes the Brooklyn Nets look like they're coming out of this like gold. Because they're picking up two picks, they get rid of Jason Kidd, and they get a coach in Lionel Hollins, who was a great coach, being able to coach... Zebo, Marc Gasol, Rudy Gay, when he was still there. Last year, when Hollins was there, in the well, 2012-2013 season, I should say, the prior season when he was there, the Memphis Grizzlies were 56-26. and They made it to the Western Conference Finals. Unfortunately, they got swept by the hands of the San Antonio Spurs, and Hollins was subsequently canned. Why? Because he lost to the San Antonio Spurs in the Western Conference Finals. Newsflash, the Spurs just won the title, and last year they were also in the finals when the Heat won the first time in there. So the the Spurs have made the finals two times in a row, but yeah, Lionel Hollins is out of a job. It makes absolutely no damn sense at all, but the Brooklyn Nets are going to come out of this looking like looking and smelling like roses here. So let's get into some more of these comments. Well, this is going to be Jason Kidd talking about the situation that he has going on in Brooklyn, and then I'm going to go ahead and talk with you about and see whether or not you think that this is believable or not. Do you call BS on it? Take a listen. No one's perfect, so and I'll be first to admit that. And so you can learn from your mistakes. Um, you know, when I have a young team like I do, you know, I have. It's, you know, about if you make a mistake, being able to own it, right, and understand that uh, owning it and understanding that you can, you know, learn from it and that you try not to make it again. And so um, on and off the court, I can be able to help these guys, and, uh, and, that, and that's what a head coach is supposed to do. Jason, uh, Bob Wolfley of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You were with a, in a big market with a good team, and you decided to come to a small market with a bad team. How come? Well, I think, Bob, when you, it's not about the market. It's it's about being able to teach. And uh, I have a great opportunity here in Milwaukee with the young roster um, to be able to, you know, our goal is to become a championship team. You know, having this opportunity with Milwaukee, I'm, I'm very excited about it. So for me, I've I played in small markets. I played in big markets. Basketball is, is inside the arena. It doesn't recognize what market you're in. It's about wins and losses, and, and that's the way I approach it. What do you think of those comments? Basketball doesn't recognize what market it's in. Are you kidding me? Everybody right now, in terms of the Lakers, the Heat, 
all the big teams here, the Knicks, they're all trying to make moves to get the best players in the league. So I call BS on that as well. And he's got a great opportunity with a young team. Yeah, the only reason why the... And I thought that that was a great question that the guy from the Milwaukee Sentinel had just asked in terms of that. Why the hell do you want to come to this piece of crap team? Pretty much is what he asked Jason Kidd. And Jason Kidd said, oh, I got a great opportunity and coach a bunch of young guys. And I'll get criticized when Ursan Ilyasova doesn't take the game-winning shot. That was one of those quotes that didn't make the cutting room floor here. But my God, are you honestly going to go ahead and tell me that, that you really wanted to take this job? I think there's something that Jason Kidd is not telling all of us, and I get the feeling that it's because this guy's a power-hungry son of a bitch. And I think it's more of a sense of the the Pistons did one good thing in talking about in terms of Stan Van Gundy, in terms of that Detroit connection, being able to get a coach that's got Dwight Howard to the NBA Finals, turned him into a two-time defensive player of the year. Stan Van Gundy was brought in. He got a little bit extra money because he's going to be the coach and the president of basketball operations. I think Jason Kidd, he didn't talk about that, but I think that's where Jason Kidd is headed. He wanted to have and be the president of basketball operations as well as be the coach. I think that that's clear. Those comments were not said, but I think that's very much the case for the Milwaukee Bucks because why the hell else would they do it? Because if you're trying to bring in a guy, you say Jason Kidd, Jason Kidd was great as a player. He's a Hall of Fame point guard, first ballot. There's no doubt about it. But my God, as a coach, you know, he had less experience than Lawrence Frank, who was canned, because Jason Kidd told him pretty much to F off. Lawrence Frank still has five years and $5 million left to assist Lionel Hollins if Lionel Hollins wishes to bring him back. And I think Lawrence Frank got shafted. I think Lawrence Frank is a better coach than Jason Kidd because Lawrence Frank did get the New Jersey Nets pretty far into the playoffs, got them to the the conference finals when Jason Kidd was the point guard and Vince Carter was their second best player. So I don't know what Jason Kidd's talking about, but he certainly doesn't come out of this. He says, you know, he, he admits when he makes mistakes, well, damn right he's made a mistake, and he definitely doesn't look like he is one of these heroes coming out of this. He looks like an absolute villain, and he comes off like an absolute arrogant asshole because he's trying to go ahead and make this move, this adjustment, to try to go ahead and get what he wants to do. And all credit to Jason Kidd if he does turn the Milwaukee Bucks around, but they haven't been good since Oscar Robertson and Luol Cinder left. So he's got a huge task in front of him, and it remains to be seen whether or not he's going to get this done. But it'll be interesting because there's going to be a lot of fireworks, not just the stuff that's going on outside, ladies and gentlemen, but the stuff that'll be going on in Milwaukee. And Jabari Parker, probably happy he was there, but now with Jason Kidd, he's going to have to go through that whole fiasco, and I feel bad for him. Coming back in from the break next, we're going to talk about the 2014 World Cup and the run that was for the USA. I'll tell you why not all of it is bad, but I'll tell you why Jurgen Klinsmann is going to want to go ahead and change some things, if he could, in the hindsight and what's on the horizon for this team from the eyeball test that you saw in the 2014 World Cup. This is John Ott, Sports Day in the D. Come back in from the break. Sports Day in the D. John on here back with the midst of all the fireworks going on in Independence Day. It is July 4, 2014, and it's good to be back with you guys. Let's get into it. It is the 2014 World Cup. 
there was a lot of stuff going on in terms of what can the U.S. do? They are in the group of death. It's almost impossible for them to get out of this situation. The group of death, Group G, appropriately named that because the United States would have to face Germany, Portugal, and a familiar foe in Ghana. Ghana, the last three times that the United States had played them, pretty much handed the United States their behind. They totally found a way just to get in the U.S.'s skin, and it's just so hard to get past these guys. And with Germany being one of the best teams in the world, maybe they're minus one of their goal scorers and they don't have Marco Royce, maybe top three, you would say, behind uh, Argentina and Brazil. I'm not, not, not necessarily certain of where you would rank them, but definitely one of the powerhouses. And Portugal, even though Cristiano Ronaldo's hurt, he's still one of the best players in the world. And then you had Ghana there. So it's tough for the United States to get through that group of death. But they were trying to get well on their way to do that. Before the games even started, there were some criticisms in terms of the United States coach and Jurgen Klinsmann because he'd let off left off one USA leading goal scorer in the name of Landon Donovan off the World Cup roster. Now, Landon Donovan, in terms of this 2014 World Cup, is getting up there in age now. This is possibly going to be his last World Cup, and he was denied the opportunity to do so, even though he is the all-time USA scoring leader. Definitely a question and some criticism that was pretty much on everybody's minds in terms of ESPN FC show and all the other pundits out there. And you're left, you're shaking your head wondering whether Jurgen Klinsmann has something against Landon Donovan and whether or not these two just don't get along. Klinsmann's comments before this stuff even started in the World Cup was saying that this team pretty much verbatim had no chance of winning this group. So he's going out there and saying that, and he's also going out there and leaving Landon Donovan off the roster. And there's no wonder why there wasn't some criticisms before the groups were even announced, what, like eight months ago? Usually we get these groups before we even go ahead and start, and the training and the friendlies and all of that to get and lead into this World Cup that only happens once every four years. There definitely is some criticisms there, and Jurgen Klinsmann, before this stuff even started, I was wondering what the hell this guy was thinking. Because even if you go out and say, and granted, he's, he's, it's okay to go ahead and say that. We know that the United States is not the best team in terms of all of that in the world. You probably find them within the 34 nations in the group stages, probably find them somewhere mid-table. I think that that's fair to say, at least. So if Klinsmann... He knows that he's putting in the group of death, and you know a lot of concessions are going to be made to Germany because FIFA wants to see them advance, and they're one of the top-tier teams. I get all of that. But the fact that he goes out there and says this team doesn't have a chance before this stuff even starts really bothers me. Some of you can go out there and say that this is a motivational tactic to try to pump the United States up to play, but if you really need a motivational tactic to go ahead and try to play in a tournament once every four years that only comes when all the world is watching, then you really shouldn't be on the damn team if you need pumping up at that point. So that was definitely a little bit you know, worrisome, in my opinion, before the games even started. But when the game started, there was some fireworks and festivities. USA played Ghana, and they were trying to find a way to get on the board and do what they can. Because when you think about Ghana, Portugal, and Germany, 
and you know you only get these you get this in the group stage and you only play these guys once and if you're tied in points then goal differential is what advance you you think as much as I did even though some other people didn't have the cojones to go ahead and say that I really did I think this was a must win for the United States they had to go out and get this one because Portugal you never know what's gonna happen with Ronaldo and you pretty much think the United States has no chance against Germany but this is what happens when the United States starts off you weren't even probably in your seats or even if you're at the bar you were still getting your drinks when this happened So the United States and Clint Dempsey, who comes out to be the American hero in terms of all of this in this tournament run, they come out and score within the first 35 seconds, like the quickest goal that the United States has ever had in the World Cup, and they punch Ghana, as Taylor Twelman said, punched him right in the face. So they go out and get this quick goal, but what subsequently ends up happening is that the United States immediately, you would think this is U.S. soccer, and this is how you have to do it because you want to win this damn game, and it makes sense to do. you got to go ahead and defend, and you still you scored in thir the 35 seconds. You got the 90-minute game. There's no breaks. You get the first half. You get the 45 minutes, and then you get the little commercial introduction, the intermission, and then you get another 45 minutes. The one good thing about soccer is when you're watching, it's an endurance test. you got to get down there and sit down, and there is no breaks after that, so it's just continuous action. Thankfully, in this World Cup, there's been a lot of action, but the United States had to go ahead and defend the entire time, and... In the like 84th minute, I believe it was, Ghana finally broke through the defense, and it sounded a little bit something like this. Dynamic if the group changes totally, if the U.S. can hold on here. Jam with a lovely ball. So, with an incredible pass and in the lead-in, Ghana was able to score. And it's a late goal, so it's 1-1, USA-Ghana. You can go ahead and draw in this situation because you're not in the knockout stage. And that's what a lot of these Taylor Twelman was even referring to throughout this game, is that the U.S. desperately needs a result. they got to go ahead and get this point because this is the group of death and there's no margin for error here. Well, the United States, being the United States, pulls some heroics out. And this is one of these things, if you never heard of this guy, you'll hear about him now, and he has the greatest goal of his life. And definitely something special when the United States score, and they score off of a set piece. Listen to this.
So there you go. The United States was able to pull out the victory off a corner kick, off of a sub of John Brooks. Pretty much doesn't get any playing time in terms of this because he's one of the young guys coming in there. Comes in off a set piece, find a way to the ball bounce around, he gets a header on it, and the United States win 2-1. to one. This is a significant result, not only just because of the group of death, but because, like we had mentioned, Ghana pretty much handed it to the USA three times in a row when they last played. Now, the Ghanaians, before this game even started, there was some quotes going out there and saying, the USA, yeah, we're not worried about that. We're going to totally take it to them. And they were dancing around, and they were very excited that the United States was their first opponent. But the United States was able to go out there and find a way to get the job done. And in that first game as well, in the group of death, Germany and Portugal played. And Germany absolutely handed it to Portugal as they got a 4 nothing victory. So both, after the first game, Germany and the USA were tied at three points apiece. And everything was looking pretty good. Within this next game in the group stage, the United States were going ahead and playing against Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal. And the United States... Off of the quick score that they had in the first game, had the exact opposite, have have that happen to them in the exact opposite way, having Portugal score early. And it sounded a little bit like this, and it was definitely a heartbreaker. Take a listen. Going through his party tricks. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? What a cameo. The World Player of the Year, just giving us a little glimpse of why. Andre Almeida. Back in by Veloso, it's a miscue to Nani! Oh my goodness me! The USA press the self-destruct button there. A catastrophe in the US defense. And slow starts have absolutely killed the United States since 2002. This is now their sixth goal they've given up in the first five minutes of a World Cup game. That's more than any other country. And while against Ghana, they set a record for the first time since 1950 with 45 clearances. The first clearance they have to deal with, they make an absolute mockery of it. Simple finish for Nani. So the United States is down one nothing, and it's early five minutes into the game. You would think that it's okay because the United States had won the first game against Ghana. It's early. United States this time can go out on the offensive and show Portugal what they're made of. But you have to think about a little bit of damage control, and that's why I delayed it up until this point. So the United States are scored on against Portugal. It's one nothing five minutes in. The damage control from last game, and what I'm referring to, is the, all of the injuries that took place. Clint Dempsey suffered a broken nose with a collision with one of the Ghanaian players. He's still playing in this game, but it's hard for him to breathe. He doesn't put one of the masks on because it's definitely going to be hard to see, and he can't have that done. Also, forward Josie Altidore pulled a hamstring early in that game against Ghana, so he is out. So the United States have one forward that's injured, and they're already down one forward in Josie Altidore, who does not play for the rest of the World Cup, including the knockout stages. So the United States has some key injuries, but they're going to try to find a way to battle back, and they do so in grand fashion. The corner, it wouldn't drop for a white shirt, now it has, Jones, oh yes, Jermaine Jones, what a cracker from him, USA level, simply sensational strike, such a big part of Jermaine Jones missed the 2010 World Cup, he's had to wait four years for this moment, 
So the United States find a way to tie this game up in grand fashion. As mentioned, there's already a couple injuries. Jermaine Jones, ball bounces around. He gets it just barely outside the box and throws a clinical strike right at the net. Ties it for the United States. Absolute hero. One of the guys, in my opinion, in this, of watching from the eyeball test. You know, I watch the World Cup quite a bit. I usually watch all the games with the U.S. And then... Uh, just a few of the outsiders, because it's the World Cup. It doesn't always come around very often. I'm not really a soccer fan, but the World Cup is definitely a time when I go ahead and tune in. And let me tell you a little bit, something about Jermaine Jones from what I'd seen. You want to talk about a guy that's gritty, tough, willing to take on all competitors, do whatever he needs to do for the United States to win. Get a strike like that is absolutely astounding. And not to mention, Jermaine Jones, as we go along in this World Cup, also suffers a broken nose and also plays through it like Clint Dempsey. So an absolute warrior, definitely one of my favorite players on this USA squad. Now that... The United States has found a way to tie this game. They feel a little, bit about, a little bit better about themselves. But now let's see if they can find a way to go on and get ahead in this game. Since 1930, the U.S. won their first two games to advance that quickly. Nicely measured. Jones to Yedlin. Only Dempsey going out really nearly got him. He has got to So Clint Dempsey finds a way to score again off of a beautiful play inside. The ball falls right to him from Zuzi, and he puts it into an open net. So United States scores very late in the game. You think Portugal has no chance to come back in there and score this goal. The United States can go and take six points. Ger Germany and Ghana at this point have tied. So if the United States win, Germany only has four points, the United States have six, they would automatically advance to that knockout round, and they don't have to worry about any result against Germany because it's already over. But the unthinkable happens, and Cristiano Ronaldo shows up again with a perfect cross. Portugal on the brink of elimination. Can they do something here? It's Cristiano Ronaldo. Oh, it's a great cross! This is a terrific goal. Uh, this is just a, who would have thought that Ronaldo would be the supplier, but this is just a world-class ball. But all night long, Portugal has looked dangerous when given the time and opportunity to deliver a ball behind the back four of the United States. Great finish from Barella, but that is a world-class ball from Ronaldo. And right after that goal, right in the ensuing kickoff of that goal, the, the time is blown, and the United States suffers absolute heartbreak, in my opinion, in terms of they had that game. I don't know how that happened. It was a bad misplay that allowed Cristiano Ronaldo to get that ball back and then to subsequently score on top of the first goal that Portugal scored when it was a bungle of a clear and allowed Portugal to score. So as good as the United States looked scoring two goals, they also made a mess of it by giving up two goals to Portugal, and that one was at the worst time of all 
and you would think that would have put all of that stuff away, and now the United States has to worry about maybe getting a result against Germany. So that's tough. So Jermaine Jones, broken nose, Clint Dempsey, broken nose, and Josie Altidore is out. And now in the final game of the group stage, USA and Germany play. The United States in this game get thoroughly outplayed. That's why I don't have any audio quotes to play for you. And you also have to worry about another injury going on with Johansson. He's going to miss some time going within this World Cup. So he's going to be out as well. The United States gets outshot big time. Germany's totally outplaying them. Germany wins one to nothing. Ghana had just tied the game against Portugal 1-1. And Ian Dark, I think Taylor Twelman had to talk about him, but he's the guy doing the play-by-play. Ian Dark said the United States should be celebrating because Ghana had just tied up the game against Portugal. I think he had done a little bit too much moving around in terms of all the stuff going on in Brazil because the United States are not celebrating at this point because if Ghana goes ahead and pulls out a victory, the United States get eliminated. They did not get a result against Germany, but thankfully at the very end of the game, After Ghana just hit the post, Cristiano Ronaldo puts one in the back of the net. Portugal wins. Goal differential, down too much. It doesn't matter. United States are going to advance on the 1-0 loss. I don't know if anybody else was totally jumping up and down at the result of a loss, but it was enough for the United States to get into the round of 16. Only problem was in the knockout stage, they played against Belgium. Now, Belgium is a pretty good team in terms of having Hazard, having another guy off the, coming off the bench that Tim Howard is very aware of. It was a definite speedster. He was able to get the job done and put some pressure on. Belgium was totally out shooting the United States, getting the job done for themselves. Tim Howard, I believe, made 15 or 16 saves throughout the entire 90 minutes just to keep the game scoreless to get into extras. And there's no reason to believe that the United States should have even been at that point to be in that part in the game if it wasn't for Tim Howard's heroics. Tim Howard was standing on his head. The United States were thoroughly outshot, thoroughly outplayed. There was a couple instances from time to time where the United States had a shot. Chris Wondolowski, there was a ball played inside from Bradley that he just missed a chip in front of the goalie to go ahead and put the United States up late. That would have won them the game for sure in the knockout stage. Instead he missed. We go into extras. and the first extra time, Belgium scores two goals. The United States are down two to nothing. One of the poor, one of the Belgium players kisses the camera. At this point, before I'm even doing the show and getting all the notes prepped, the dude kisses the camera. Belgium's up two nothing. It's the end of the first extra time. I gotta be honest with you guys. I bolted. I was out. I was pissed off. I went ahead and tried to go do something else because I knew the United States were done at this point. Especially when the first goal was scored, I thought the game was already over because I think it was Beesler was the one that fell, gave uh, the guy of Belgium a completely wide-open right side of the pitch to work with, and it was an easy goal for them. And when the second goal was in, there was definitely a death sentence. When I went ahead and did these show notes, and then I watched the rest of the second extra time, it looked like the United States, I don't know what Jurgen Klinsmann said, but they definitely went on them out on their shield. It was a beautiful goal that was scored off of the 
Julian Green that came in another one of these rookie ki kids after a beautiful pass that was played ahead where he scored in pretty much an open net. So the United States was only down 2-1. to one. The problem with the extra time is you only get the 15 minutes. But then the United States gets a free kick. There was a beautiful playoff with a free kick. A couple extra passes in there, and Clint Dempsey, I don't know how the shot didn't go in, but the United States had a chance to tie it 2-2. Two to two. They just couldn't get the job done. They lose 2-1. to one. They get out of the group of death, but they lose in the knockout stage in the first round, the round of 16. The reason why I go ahead and say that this isn't all bad is because the way that this team was set up, Jurgen Klinsmann was saying, this isn't one of these teams that's going to go out there and do anything in terms of significance. They did that in terms of significance for me, getting out of that group of death. I think that that was good to see, getting a chance to see them play an extra game. I don't like the way they played throughout that first extra time. I'm glad I got a chance to watch the rest of that off of the ESPN, watch ESPN app and watch them go out on their shield, which was good to see. But I don't know where the heck the rest of that was for the rest of the game. Maybe that has something to do with the roster and the injuries were that were in play. Let me tell you something that definitely bothered me. The fact that the United States had three goalkeepers on this roster definitely bothers me. Tim Howard out of Everton, I know him between the last three World Cups, is one of the best goalies in the world. There's no doubt about it. He was the main reason why the United States was in that game against Belgium. There's two extra goalkeepers, as far as I'm concerned, they're not going to see any time at all. They didn't. That's two wasted roster spots for me. I know the United States isn't exactly deep, but you definitely would think that they can go ahead and bring in a couple more midfielders at least, or a couple more forwards. The United States, for this World Cup roster, has eight defenders. As far as I'm concerned, you got your four your four backs there, two center backs. Is that enough defenders? You got a couple subs in there, maybe six, seven, definitely not eight. And the United States only has four forwards. Geez, you think you should have a little bit more forwards? I know Tim Howard's a stud. He's able to stand on his head, but he can't go out there and score for you. Michael Bradley played a little bit better game against the Belgi against the Belgians, been able to get the United States ever closer, but he left a lot to be desired in the midfield for the tournament. Clint Dempsey, 31. This may only be one more World Cup for Dempsey. He'll be 35. It's a shame that he got his nose broken. Maybe things could have been a little bit different. It's a, sh it's a shame Josie Altador and Johansson had to pull hamstrings. Maybe the things could have been a little bit different. Jermaine Jones was denied out of the last World Cup. 33, he'll be 37 in the next one. Might be it for him. Definitely like the grit and toughness and all the stuff we talk about. DeAndre Yedlin, I like that sub that came in when he was playing attack, but he was a defender playing attacker because the United States didn't have any more forwards. And with Johansson and Altidore getting hurt, yeah, that definitely sucks in terms of the depth and it hurt the United States. But when you got eight defenders and you got two other goalkeepers, which I think especially, okay, you can granted you can argue you can have one backup just in case, God forbid, anything happens to Tim Howard. But other than that, there's definitely some roster questions. And I wonder if there was some change of that in hindsight that Jurgen Klinsmann maybe would have thought, hmm, maybe I should have more attackers here just in case something goes wrong because 
All I remember Taylor Twelman saying and Ian Dark saying was these guys have got to stay healthy because there's not any depth up front for these forwards. And that might have been one of the things that took out Cinderella USA as far as I'm concerned because the injuries hit them hard and they didn't have any depth to be able to attack the way that they wanted to. It was a valiant effort, but it's a shame that the roster wasn't constructed a little bit differently to deal with some of the injuries you're going to have because you only get a shot at it once every four years. And you kind of think the USA could have done a little bit better if they had just instances to be able to deal with the injuries that they faced. When we come back in from the break, we're going to close the show as the Detroit Tigers now have become one of the hottest teams in baseball. You'll get my take on what one of these pitchers is doing and some surprising numbers as well as finishing off the first half and leading into the All-Star break for the Tigers. Come back in from the break. This is John Ott, Sports Day in the D. Sports Day in the D. John Ott here with you back for the final segment time. It is the Detroit Tigers, it is the AL Central, and the Tigers are finally one of the hottest teams in baseball once again. And unlike when I gave you in the opener, the Tigers winning 11 out of 13, just called the end of it now, the Tigers, 8-1 winners over the Tampa Bay Rays, have won 12 of 14 games. They are 48-34, and they believe will have at least a 4.5 game lead in the division. If Kansas City loses, that moves up to 5.5. So the Rays do get a run in the top of the first inning, but the Tigers counter quickly as they hit three bombs and the bottom of the first score five runs, won the game eight to one. So the Tigers have had some heroics of late, and it's been pretty good because the Tigers had coming out of them. The last time I had talked to you, the Tigers had lost, what, 14 out of 17. They just were coming off of getting swept by the Toronto Blue Jays. Not everything was looking good. In fact, they were looking one of the worst teams in all of baseball. And it's fascinating to me how fast this team can sometimes go ahead and turn this the entire way around. A little heroics have helped, and a little good starting pitching has helped. I think if you're going to talk about a main cog, a main reason why the Tigers are able to make this quick turnaround, I think it's in one 25-year-old and the name pitcher Rick Porcello. Rick Porcello is just coming off throwing back-to-back complete game shutouts. This this hasn't happened in quite a long time as he got a shutout over the Rangers and the best team in baseball in the Oakland A's, by the way, which the Tigers have just come off and swept the Oakland A's, those pesky Oakland A's. And they've looked so good in doing that because the Tigers' starting pitching has been so good. And when this team does get good starting pitching, they seem to find a way to turn that offense on. And even when they don't, some of these heroics have helped. Take a listen to this in the form of Rajay Davis. This is the second game of that series between the Oakland Athletics when the Tigers were able to pull out a victory. And then following... Justin Verlander was able to finally get on track too, but this is Rajay. This is a great call here by Dan Dickerson. Take a listen. Case is loaded. Tigers are down three in the bottom of the ninth. One out. Go one zero. Swinging a fly ball to left field. This one's deep. Going back. Gentry at the fence. It's gone. Wow. It's gone. A walk off grand slam in the bottom of the ninth for Rajay Davis. And he went with the breaking ball. Rajay Loco. Incredible. Around third. 
the high five from Clarky Cabrera into the box. He did home. Oh man, Rosie Davis with a walk-off grand slam, and the Tigers win it five to four. That's an incredible call there by Dan Dickerson. And it's funny that it comes against the Oakland Athletics because you think about circa 2006 with Maglio Ordonia sending the Tigers of the World Series. That might be the best call Dan Dickerson has had since then with the most emphatic call of Rajay Davis hitting a very unlikely grand slam. And that's probably due to Austin Jackson also having one of the best at-bats of his life, getting on base, extending the inning, getting a chance to get Rajay to get in there and hit a grand slam. And what does Rajay do? He hits the grand slam. So it's absolutely great stuff. It's been culminated by great starting pitching for the Detroit Tigers as well. Justin Verlander, he was having lost three straight games at home, tying this, or maybe it was four straight games. It was tying the season worst he's ever had at home. He was able to go out there and throw a great game against the Oakland Athletics. He, in the very first pitch, he gave up another home run to Coco Crisp. That's happened to him before. Remember, and then the postseason, a couple of seasons ago. And then Brandon Moss as well. But then after that, Justin Verlander came out through six strong innings, only giving up those two runs, giving the Tigers a chance to win. And then the Tigers, even though the Tampa Bay Rays have been not having a great season, in that AL West, having to deal with Toronto, Baltimore, Boston, the Yankees. The Rays still were coming off of sweeping the New York Yankees, and they're coming into town playing the Detroit Tigers. Tampa Bay Rays have good pitching. The Tigers were able to put them away quickly. So Rick Porcello, we mentioned the back-to-back complete game shutouts with the, over the Rangers and the A's. He's still only 25, and his 11 wins is tied for the best in baseball. With Rick Porcello, it's not just the ground ball outs and the double plays that he's also been able to get, but against the Oakland A's, who's the hottest team in baseball, he was able to get that complete game shutout, only throwing 95 pitches. Absolutely efficient and incredible stuff there for Rick Porcello, who may be shining a light on, maybe the the final version of Rick Porcello that we're going to see here. Maybe this is going to be the guy that's going to continue to locate all of his pitches, get these ground ball outs, keep his middle infielders busy, but turn those double plays and get the job done because he likes to pitch to contact. He's very good at getting those worm killers and getting the ball and getting to his guys and getting them out. So he does a good job of that. The unfortunate part, it was good to see that Justin Verlander had won, but the unfortunate part is it seems like Justin Verlander, even though he got that win against the Oakland Athletics that he desperately needed, he pitches very well against that team, by the way, with all that stuff he's been going on. Verlander really needed that win, but it's a shame that Verlander isn't on his game as much as he could be, because if you think about it, Max Scherzer, he wasn't doing so well, but his last three starts have been pretty great. Anibal Sanchez has been great all year. If Verlander was able to step up his game a little bit, maybe it would be even more to see from what Rick Porcello was able to do, see how far this team can go, because they desperately need this good starting pitcher because his bullpen is definitely suspect still. They're trying to improve of late, and maybe Joaquin Benoit is going to be on the market during the trade deadline, which the Tigers... I talked about this before. I don't think the Tigers should have ever gotten rid of him. But maybe there's a chance for him to get back on the mar- 
back to the Tigers, back on the mark, back where he needs to be for the Tigers to get to where they want to get to in the World Series to finally get that win. They need some legitimate bullpen help. Joaquin Benoit would definitely solidify that. It'd be nice to see if Justin Verlander could turn that stuff a little bit around because it kind of seems like as Justin Verlander's taken a step back, Rick Porcello has taken the leap forward. So that's what you have between those two guys, but it's good to see Rick Porcello taking that leap forward and the fact that he's only 25, you might be getting prime Rick Porcello for a good price and that's always a good thing for the Detroit Tigers because they're still trying to figure out what the payroll is going to be and what's going to happen with Max Scherzer, what's going to happen with Victor Martinez. Speaking of Victor Martinez, not only hitting another two-run bomb, so I also have to change my notes a little bit, Victor Martinez, I think, believe he's hitting more than 323. I'll say 325 now after this game, and 21 home runs is good for fifth in all of baseball. So Victor Martinez has been absolutely blazing hot. And I don't know where this power resurgence came from, but Victor Martinez has been on the top of the world in terms of all of that. So it's definitely worked out for Victor Martinez. And speaking of Martinez's, if that's how you want to go ahead and say the plural, <laughs> that J.D. Martinez has been just as advertised. He's been just as good in terms of if you have Martinez on the back of your jersey, you're a guy that magically can hit the baseball. And it certainly proved to be the case because J.D. Martinez has been just as great. There was a graphic that was shown on Fox 2 News by sportsman Dan Miller as he talked about that J.D. Martinez had similar numbers to Prince Fielder in terms of this point of the season when Prince Fielder was healthy with the Detroit Tigers, minus, obviously, the amount of money. And I think he has a couple less home runs, does J.D., and he has a few more RBIs. So, J.D. Martinez has been just as good. Victor Martinez has replaced Prince Fielder effectively. Maybe this is... Maybe I should take a step back and think about maybe this is what Victor Martinez can finally do when he's healthy. But even Victor Martinez, I think if you asked him, he would tell you that he maybe he doesn't know. Even if he's completely healthy like he is now, he's got a little bit of a uh, back problem and now not being able to bat as well from the left side. But he's going to get all that stuff healthy and worked out as we begin in the second season. It's just a very, very minor injury. But now that he's totally healthy from all the stuff that went on in the offseason when the Tigers were forced to get Prince Fielder because he didn't have Victor, even Victor would tell you he's probably surprised about the power resurgence. The one thing you can't be surprised about Victor Martinez is, is his ability to swing the bat is and always will be good because he is a career 300 hitter. So that's not a surprise, but the power certainly is a welcome surprise and all that the Tigers are really thriving on and that they really need. J.D. Martinez was pretty much a Houston Astros castaway, told that he wasn't going to be able to make the team. He comes to the Detroit Tigers, and he's fit in and done everything that he needed to do. And it certainly seems, and you can finally say it, because with Prince Fielder being out, I mentioned it before on one of the older radio shows, the Tigers definitely got the better end of the deal with Ian Kinsler over Prince Fielder, because Ian Kinsler has been everything that the Tigers could have wanted. The one thing that was surprising, maybe not, it wasn't to me, but maybe to all of you, 
was the fact that the Houston Astros, I thought this might be a little bit of a tough series for the Detroit Tigers, and for one reason and one reason only, that being Jose Altuve. This guy is on another planet right now. He's still hitting, I believe, second in average in all of baseball, at least second in the American League as far as I'm concerned. He had six stolen bases in three games against the Detroit Tigers. Couldn't find a way to get this guy out. When he drew walks... You might as well get him to second base because you know he's going to steal and sometimes even get to third. Absolutely a thorn in the side of the Detroit Tigers. The Houston Astros, you might laugh at that, but Nolan Ryan, he might have this team on the fast track to success in the next few years. Even though they're in the American League, and that's definitely tough, the Houston Astros have some signs of some positive action, and it definitely seems like Jose Altuve is going to be the guy to bring that to him because he was incredible to watch. Didn't like to see the Tigers lose, but I can definitely respect everything that Altuve is bringing. And I believe he's even a shorter stature than Dustin Pedroia of the Boston Red Sox, but he's every bit as good, and that's incredible stuff from Altuve. So with the Tigers being 48 and 34, and I mentioned, I don't know what happened with the Royals that they were playing tonight, but the Tigers were at least guaranteed a four and a half game lead with this win now, maybe up to five and a half now. Finish the first half with three more games against the Rays, two against the Dodgers, and then they go to Kansas City for final four games against the Kansas City Royals before the All-Star break and the All-Star game. Tonight is the last night. By the time you get this show, it'll already be over. But for the to go ahead and vote for the Tigers for the All-Star game, it's going to be clear that Miguel Cabrera is going to start at first base. And a surprise shouldn't be, though, but Nelson Cruz with all those home runs is a surprise, but it's not a surprise that he's starting in the All-Star game at DH. Definitely deserves it. He's been able to bring everything that he needs to for the Baltimore Orioles to try to be successful. He's been absolutely unbelievable. But with the Tigers sitting at 48 and 34 and at least a four and a half game lead in the division, do you feel comfortable? Because you think the Tigers are pitching pretty well. They should be able to take at least three out of four. I believe it's a four game series against the Rays. If it's only three, then at least take two out of three against the Rays. You think, you feel pretty good about that. If the Tigers can avoid Clayton Kershaw, they, they could have a chance to take two games, maybe at least split, go one out of two. Because Clayton Kershaw, I don't believe, has been scored on since, what, 27 innings or something like that? Clayton Kershaw has been on another planet. He's looking for a third Cy Young and his uh, second MVP, I believe. Clayton Kershaw has been amazing. I guess the only thing you really concern yourself about is the final series against the Kansas City Royals when you go there for four. Because last time Kansas City was here, they were able to take... First place for a day with the game-and-a-half lead, and since then the Tigers have been able to relinquish that back by sweeping the Cleveland Indians at first when the Royals got swept by the Seattle Mariners. So where's your comfort level with this team? That's what I wanted to as we're going to be closing out the show here. You can always get at me, facebook.com slash tbugunslinger, or at Twitter, at John Ryan Ott. I'll leave the show details on the Shot Engine page, and like I mentioned, we're going to be leaving a little bit of an introduction segment that I will go ahead and post separately to welcome you all into the show. If you don't want to read some of those statements, then you can listen to some of the stuff that you can be expecting from me to be able to bring you into the show and what it's all about. I think that would be a good way to go for it. 
But like I said, always get get in there and try to contact me and let me know what you think about the topics, stories, and statements, and let me know. What do you think of this Tigers team as they currently sit with at least a four-and-a-half game lead? How do you feel right now? Because it certainly seems like Rick Porcello, hopefully he can maintain his same uh, stature, velocity, pitching location, all of that within this second half. I think that's going to be very important. But the Tigers are playing some good baseball once again, winning 12 out of 14 after losing the 14 out of 17. Now they're one of the hottest teams in baseball again. How do you feel about this team? Where are they at? And how is the second half going to look as they try to march into the break, the all-star game, and they look forward to the trade deadline? What do you think of the Tigers? This is John Ott signing off for Sports Day in the D. Glad you can make it here for this July 4th Independence Day 2014 show. It's good to be back on the air. It was good to bring a lot of audio quotes and information to you. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm going to try to go ahead and get you a show at least every two weeks. I'll go ahead and mention this stuff in the introduction so you get the exact details and layout of everything else that's been going on. Enjoy the holiday. Enjoy the family and friends. Everything else, the festivities along with it. Be happy. Be safe. Have fun. And I will see you guys when I see you guys. Appreciate you guys listening to the show. Take care. This is John Ott signing off.